March. It's our new series. I'm really excited about it. A powerful way to journey through the season in the church here that we call Lent. Um, and today as we begin the series, I want to ask you to do something that, that's personal. I'm going to ask you to do something that might even bring up some unpleasant memories for you. Uh, but I believe it's important as we start off this, uh, this message today. I want to ask you, when you feel threatened, when you feel threatened, when, when you feel like you're being stepped on, or imposed upon, or taken advantage of in some way, or, or maybe, maybe it's not personal, maybe it's, maybe it's just when your values are feeling threatened. When someone is stepping on a deeply held belief or a conviction, in those moments when that happens, and, and maybe you're thinking specific, and maybe you're thinking of a specific moment that's really painful, uh, just step back and think generally then. Generally, in those moments, what do you do? How do you handle those moments? Do you, do you take a stand? Are you one who, who you know, digs your heels in and you resist? Are you someone who, who gives in? Do you, do you fold under the pressure? Are you a fighter? Are you someone who fights back? You believe that the best defense is a strong offense, and so you will strike first and fast. Or do you do something else? My question today is, just think about that for yourself. What is it that you do? Now, I can tell you which of those things I do. Not only can I tell you, I will tell you. Um, last Saturday, a week ago Saturday, we took my wife's car in for its, uh, I guess, what, biannual state inspection. Now, if you live in Missouri, you know how this works. Uh, for those of you who may not live in Missouri, in the state of Missouri, if you want to get your car re-registered, your plates renewed, you have to go through a series of inspections. You have to verify that you've paid your, your personal property taxes. You have to prove all kinds of things that you're a citizen, that there are not any you know, aliens residing inside of your body. I mean, all kinds of hoops you have to jump through. You, know, you have to give blood and DNA. It's just crazy what you have to do in Missouri to, uh, to get your car renewed. But this is how it is when you live here. So um, we were starting the first part of that, which is to get a state inspection on my wife's car. So we took it into the shop. We dropped it off. About an hour later, I got a phone call. got a phone call from the uh, service manager there. And, um, and uh, he called and he was like, hey, everything looks great on the car, which was good. Our car is 10 years old. So um, expected some things. He said, but you're going to need four new tires in order to pass inspection. Um, and, and, and okay, but what came to mind immediately is, hold on. I just got two new tires on that car a couple of years ago. So two certainly should be worn out, but all four should not be worn out on the same time. Uh, at the same time, in fact, the two new tires I got were from this same shop just a couple of years ago. And so um, I told the service tech that. I'm like, you know, we live a very local life. I don't understand how these tires can be worn already. And, uh, and, he, and he quickly just spouted back. He spouted off. He said, well, they're unevenly worn on the inside and the outside, which is a sign of inadequate rotation. But I can set you up with four new tires for way too much money. It's actually not what he said about the way too much money, but that's what he meant. Uh, that's what I heard. Now, the problem is, the problem is, is that this shop is the shop that I take my car to for everything, to get oil changes for minor repairs. So my car has been in there numerous times over the last few years, and, uh, and they never once mentioned to me that my tires were looking worn or that they needed to be rotated. And, I mean, this is a place I brought, bought my tires from. So, so I brought that up to him. I, I'm like, you know, why, why wasn't this brought up, this need for tire rotation, when I brought my car in? I, you know, I bought my tires from you. And his answer? Sir, that's not our responsibility. Right? I'm like, it's on, right? Uh, so I unload on this guy. And I'm like, so I can bring my car in there and, and you can tell me that I need transmission fluid change and my power steering needs 
fluid needs to be flushed, and, and you can comment on how dirty my throttle body is, and I'm not sure what that is or if I should take offense to that or not, but, 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 but you can't look at the tires that I bought from you and tell me that they need to be rotated? Are you kidding me? So yeah, when I feel threatened, when I feel like someone is taking advantage of me, uh, I fight back. Now, uh, some of you are eager to know what happened. Well, I ended up getting four new tires, but I only paid for a couple of them, um, which was good. See, I fight back. That's what I do. Whenever I feel threatened, what do you do? What do you do? Now, what if I told you that how you handle those situations, those situations that are really all too common in, in everyday life, what if I told you that the way you handle those situations, how you handle those situations, is higher stakes than you think? See, today we begin a new series called Marked, What Sets You Apart. And we're talking about what, what is to set us apart as we live our lives as Christ followers in a world that doesn't follow Christ. Now, I think the problem with this whole series is that for most of us, when we talk about what sets us apart or the mark that should accompany a Christian person, we think of one mark above all. We think of the mark of faith, right? And, and for good reason. I mean, Jesus himself said, the work of God is this. To believe in the one he has sent. In John 3.16, really well-known verse, Jesus says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. So I think for most of us, we think, well, the mark of a Christian is to believe, to be a person of faith. We even call ourselves that, people of faith, right? And while that's true, what happens to us too often is that we get confused about two components of our faith. We get confused about what is necessary for us, what is necessary for us, what is required of us to receive eternal life. And Jesus makes it clear that that's faith. Faith. But we get that confused with what it looks like to live our lives as followers of Jesus. See, I just want to be really clear as we begin this series that the marks we will talk about in this series that these marks are not things that, that are required to make you lovable to God. They're not required to make you acceptable to God. They're not things that will earn your way into eternity or into God's favor. Faith is what does that. Okay, let's be clear about this. But the marks we are talking about are, are, are just so important for another reason. The marks we are talking about are important because they are the things that will identify you as someone who follows Jesus. These are marks that will show the world that you belong to him. Just in the same way that, you know, my daughters and their blue eyes show everyone that they're mine. And for my son, it's, it's not his eyes, it's his, his, his lower back. Just weird. His lower back is my back. It's, you'd have to see it at the pool someday and hopefully you'll never have to experience that. But um, it shows the world that he is mine, right? I mean, those, those resemblances, that's what we're talking about in the series. Not what earns you favor with God, but what demonstrates to the world, hey, I belong to Jesus. And I just have to tell you today that, that the way we handle those all too common situations that I talked about in the beginning, those moments in life when we feel threatened, when our values feel threatened, the way we handle those situations normally, it bears almost no resemblance to Jesus. So today we're going to talk about that. And to do this, uh, we're going to go back to the Old Testament book of 2 Kings chapter 6. You can see up here, it's a, uh, if you want to grab a Bible in the room, it's page 368. Um, the words will be on the screen here in a moment. We're going to go back and look at a prophet by the name of Elisha. Or some people pronounce it Elisha. 
but I think that sounds like a girl's name, so I'm not going to do that, even if that's the right way. I'm going to call him Elisha. Elisha is a prophet of God living in a corrupt and confusing time. And today we're going to look at an encounter in his life where he is being threatened. Where he is in one of those moments like we experience all the time. And yet the way that he responds is so powerful. The way he responds is so powerful that we need to look at it because it sends a clear message to everyone around him who he belongs to and who he follows. Because his response is like no other. So today we're going to look at it. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting at verse 8. Uh, the words are right here. It starts off this way. Now the king of Aram was at war with God's people Israel. So after conferring with his officers, he said, I will set up my camp in such and such a place. Very specific, right? Such and such a place. Uh, but meanwhile, the man of God, this is Elisha, the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, to his king. Beware of passing that place because the Arameans are going down there. So the king of Israel checked out on the place indicated by the prophet, the man of God. Time and time again, Elisha warned the king so that he was on guard in such places. So you get the preamble here of what's going on. Two nations at war. One is Aram. Now, in some of your uh, translations, it might say Syria, uh, because Syria was maybe in control of Aram at the time. So Aram or Syria is at war with Israel. So there's this foreign nation at war with God's people. And the foreign nation of, of Aram, their, their, their king is trying to set traps for the king of Israel, right? Take the king out. And so he's dreaming up these plots. But meanwhile, Elisha supernaturally sees and hears these plots. And so he warns his king, the king of Israel. And he says, hey, look out, this guy's setting a trap for you. And sure enough, they check it out and he's setting a trap each time. So he foils the king of Aram's plans, which, I mean, you can imagine how this makes the king of Aram feel. In fact, you don't have to imagine. It says, this enraged, this enraged the king of Aram. He summoned his officers and demanded of them, tell me which of us is on the side of the king of Israel. You know, I've got a traitor in my midst. Who is spying for the king of Israel here? None of us, my lord, the king, said one of his officers. It's Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel. He tells the king of Israel the very words you speak in your bedroom. That's how powerful he is. So the king answered, go find out where he is so I can send men and capture him. And the report came back. He is in Dothan. Now, Dothan was this, uh, this other small city that was outside of the capital of Samaria. Um, not a very fortified city. It was where there were some royal residences. So it's kind of like the country homes of the royalty. And that's where Elisha is spending his time. So a very vulnerable place. So the king of Aram hears this. Then he sent horses and chariots and a strong force there. They went by night and they surrounded the city. Now watch. When the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, got up and went out early the next morning... An army with horses and chariots had surrounded the city, so he discovers this. And he says, oh no, my lord, what shall we do? Don't be afraid, Elisha answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. So, so the king of Aram sets this plan, this plot. He says, if I can't get the king of Israel because of this Elisha, maybe we can get Elisha. We can take him out, and then we can attack and defeat Israel. So they send this massive army around. And I mean, can you imagine what it's like for the servant of Elisha? He's up early in the morning, I don't know, doing chores, getting stuff ready for his master. And he looks around and the city is surrounded. Surrounded by this vast army, this little tiny city. Surrounded by this vast army filled with horses and chariots. We're talking about the finest weaponry of their day. And he's looking at this and he, said, he runs in, he tells his master, Oh no, oh no, we are in trouble. And his master goes, 
No, no, it's okay. Because those who are with them are greater than those who are with the Arameans. And Elisha's servant starts counting on his fingers and his toes, right? Going, we've got like 10 guys here with spears. How are we going to stand up against these horses and these chariots? Elisha's servant is freaking out. Now, now here's the setting. Deeply threatened, right? Deeply threatened. He knows who they've come for. He knows what's going on. He's feeling deeply threatened. His safety, the safety of his master is being threatened in this moment. Watch what happens. And Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. See what? Watch this. Then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So immediately the servant's eyes are open and he sees this supernatural realm where these are not the the horses of the Arameans. These are horses of God's angels, angel armies. And there are these chariots of fire, you know, surrounding Elisha. He's got these personal heavenly bodyguards around him. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine? See, I hope you can. And I hope you can remember that the next time in your life. You remember this picture the next time in your life when you are feeling overpowered and outnumbered and alone. When you feel like the battle is all on you to fight. When you feel like you, you are being threatened and, and there is no way out for you. You are outnumbered. You are, you are outgunned. You, you, are, you are in deep trouble. I want you to remember the picture of this scene. That our God is a God who commands armies of angels. Now, I know in our culture, angels are like nice and soft. And in the Bible, angels are fierce warriors when they need to be. Our God commands angel armies over you. You are never alone. He is with you. He is on your side. He is fighting for you. I hope the next time you're feeling threatened or overwhelmed or outnumbered, you're feeling like you are all alone, that God has forsaken you. I hope you'll remember that God is fighting for you and that you are not alone because that changes things, right? I mean, with this servant, one moment he's going, we are in trouble. And Elisha just goes, no, no, it's okay. And his eyes are opening. He sees, he sees the power of God all around them. And he goes, okay now. Let's bring this on, right? Watch what happens next as this, uh, this conflict gets, uh, gets started. As the enemy came down toward him. So, you know, they're surrounding the city. They start descending on this city. Elisha prayed to the Lord, strike this army with blindness. So he struck them with blindness, as Elisha had asked. So, so uh, you know, right away, you know, they, they launch an assault. Elisha returns it. Fifteen love. It's Strike them with blindness. Now, we don't know if this is literal blindness, like they can't see anything, or if it's visual confusion. But either way, they're disoriented. They, they don't see things clearly. The only thing Elijah, Elisha has to do is, is say a prayer, and these guys are blind. I mean, this is getting exciting, right? So uh, blindness is the first thing. Then Elisha told them, he went out and told them, hey, guys, this is not the road, and this is not the city you're looking for. Follow me, and I will lead you to the man you are looking for. And he led them to Samaria. So you love this, right? I mean, Elisha, he blinds them first, and now he goes out to them. He's the very guy they're looking for, and he goes, hey, you're looking for the wrong guy in the wrong place. I'll take you there. Just follow me. Follow my voice. I'll, I'll lead you there. And they're like, okay, okay. Right? I love this trickery. He tricks them. He leads them where? Do you see? Samaria. Leads them to Samaria. Now, where's Samaria? That's the capital city, a fortified city. He leads them to this capital city. He leads them right to the gates of Fort Bragg. Right? Hey, this is the place you should be looking for. 
It's brilliant, right? 30 love Elisha. Now watch this. After they entered the city, Elisha said, Lord, open the eyes of these men so that they can see. Then the Lord opened their eyes and they looked and they were inside Samaria. Isn't this awesome? So Elijah just doesn't have them captured. He doesn't defeat them or attack them. He first gives them that moment when their eyes are open and they look around and, and they, they have that like, oh no moment. I'm putting it PG for you. That oh no moment, right? Like where are we right now? Elisha gives them that moment, you know, like of, of remember, remember when you were surrounding our city and we were inside and we we're going, oh no, not, now that's you, now that's you, right? I mean, it's brilliant. 40 love Elisha. It's game point, right? Watch this. When the king of Israel saw them, he asked Elisha, shall I kill them, my father? Shall I kill them? So the king of Israel there in his city sees these armies and, you know, they're surrounded by his guard presumably. And, and, and he leans over to Elisha and he goes, Elisha, it is game point. These armies, these people who have been attacking us, they've been looting us, they've been taking our stuff, they've been intimidating us, they've been filling our people with fear. It is time. We can end this. It's game point, Elisha. You say the word and we will finish them. And see, this is where we, friends, this is where we so often go wrong in life, where things go horribly wrong for us. See, sometimes in life, God will grant you a great reversal. One moment you go from being that, that, that skinny kid with taped up glasses and a pocket protector shaking in his suspenders. Uh, one moment you're that, and then the next moment, you know, you, you grow up and you, you hulk out or, or you discover some power or advantage. Sometimes in your life, God will grant you a great reversal where, where in one moment you're feeling threatened or overwhelmed, but the next moment you'll find that, that you've been given some advantage or some power over those who have been intimidating you. And in that moment, the question for us is, what do we do? What do we do when the tables get turned and we suddenly find ourselves in a position of advantage? Do we retaliate? Do we finish them? See, all too often that's exactly what we do. I'll just go on being vulnerable here today. Uh, for me, growing up, I, I realized that I didn't have a lot of size or strength when it came to those who might intimidate me. But one day I discovered that God had given me a power. And that power was words. And, and I realized that, that I could get so skillful with my words. I, I could sharpen my words so sharp that I could absolutely destroy anyone who threatened me, who intimidated me, anyone who embarrassed me, anyone who looked at me the wrong way, anyone who got on my wrong side. I, I could shred them. I could annihilate them with my words. And so that's what I did. In fact, that's what I too often still do. Today I want to ask you, what's, what's your power? Have you discovered that you also have a power? Is it your words? Have you discovered the power of gossip? Have you discovered that, that you with just a few sentences can destroy someone's reputation and discredit them so that no one wants to listen to them anymore? Is it your physical strength? Is it your fists? Is that what you've discovered as your power? Your physical size? Is it your position in your organization, your title? Is that what you use? Is it your position in the community? Is it, is it your relationships or your influence? Is it your intelligence? 
have you discovered that you have a power and have you been using that power to retaliate, to get even, to finish those people off who would threaten you? You know, is your, is your power Facebook? Where you can campaign and lobby and launch an all-out assault against anyone who disagrees with you? What is your power? And see, maybe some of you, you've, you haven't discovered yet your power, or you're not sure what I'm talking about, but if the tables were turned, if the tables were turned, and suddenly you had an advantage over those who threaten you, if you were Elisha, and in this moment you've got the king of Israel with his army standing in your ear saying, you just say the word, I will finish these people. These people who came after you, these people who came to capture you, these people who threatened your life, you just say the word and it's over. I'll handle this for you. In that moment, how long would it take you to say, go? Honestly. It wouldn't take very long, would it? And for most of us, We've got life experience that tells us that it it never takes very long because when we've had the advantage, we've taken it. We've taken it and we've trounced. We've retaliated. We have beat down our enemy as soon as we could, as quick as we could. But oddly, that's not the way Elisha handles his advantage here. I want to show you what he does instead. It's game point. The king is saying, do you want me to kill them? Elisha answers, Do not kill them. Would you kill those you have captured with your own sword or bow? Like, would you you capture, or would you kill, rather, a prisoner of war that you've captured? You didn't even capture these people. God delivered them in your hands. Would you do that to a prisoner? Instead, instead, set food and water before them so that they may eat and drink and then go back to their master. So he prepared a great feast for them. And after they had finished eating and drinking, he sent them away. And they returned to their master. Elisha, what are you doing? You're an idiot. I mean, here you had these people, these people who have been warring against your people. These people who, have, who, have, who, who would kill you if they had the chance. And now you're just going to let them go? You're going to send them home? Not only are you going to send them home, you're going to feed them first. So if they decide on the way to turn around and come back to get you, they'll have a full belly if they engage in warfare with you. Come on, Elisha. You are a fool. This doesn't make any sense. These are the people who threatened your life. They've been threatening your people. Come on. Right? See, that's the way we see this whole thing. We say, man, Elisha, you're so weak. You're so foolish. That's so dumb. But I want to show you that what Elisha actually did is truly powerful. So he says, no, no, we're not going to kill these guys. We're going to feed them and we're going to give them water. And then it says they put a great banquet before them and they sent them home. And I want want you to see what the result of this was. Sent them away to return to their master. So the bands from Aram stopped raiding Israel's territory. You want to know why there's no peace in our cities? Do you want to know why there's no peace between nations? Why there's no peace in our political process? You want to know that why there's workplace violence, whether it's the active kind we see on the news or the passive kind that you experience every day? Do you want to know why there's, there's no peace in our schools or in our homes? 
It's because we, have people, we as people have gotten used to taking whatever advantage, whatever power we have in a situation that we can find and using it against our enemies, using it for our own benefit, for our own agenda to annihilate those who come against us. Right? But Elisha chooses to do something different. Here you've got this guy with extraordinary power. I mean, who in this room can say, Lord, blind them and it happens? Elisha is this guy who's got chariots of fire surrounding him everywhere he goes. You have this man of extraordinary power, and yet, how does he use that power? He uses that power to show goodness, right? And see, goodness is a power that's greater than every other power that Elisha has. So you wonder why things don't work out in your life? Why there's, why there's this, 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 this nonstop cycle of violence and aggression and anger and revenge? It's because we have dismissed the power of goodness. Now, I think we don't even understand how powerful this is. For us, we're all confused about goodness. Goodness is not being a goody-goody. You know people like that, right? People who follow all of the rules, never color outside of the lines. Don't drink, don't smoke, don't dance. By the way, those have never been my rules. Um, I don't know where those rules came from. But you know people who, who live that way, right? And, and they're just like, it's, it's, it's a list of don'ts. And if I don't do anything bad, that makes me good. It's not what goodness is. That's not what it means to be marked with goodness. Goodness is not weakness. Right? We see those who are good as people who are weak. As if they have no other options. Let me set this straight for you, okay? And I think this will jive with your experience. Goodness requires incredible strength. What Elisha did, I mean, it would have been easy. He wouldn't have had to think to say to, to the king of Israel, go and step out of the way while these people got annihilated, the Arameans. Being able to say, no, 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 we're not going to play it that way. Give them food and drink and send them home. That requires more strength than any of us can recognize. Goodness is not being a religious zealot. It's not setting up pickets and protesting for your pet religious or political cause. That's not what goodness is. What is goodness then? Goodness is first an attitude. It's an attitude. See, it's a, it's a perspective. It's when you look around the world and you see people who are in desperate need of compassion. And guess what? It's an attitude that says that those who threaten me, those who oppress me, those who step on my values, those who impose upon me, those people more often than not are the people who are most, those are the people who are most in need of love and grace and compassion. See, goodness is an attitude. It's a shift in your perspective. And then it's not just an attitude, but goodness is ultimately an action. See, goodness is an action. It's taking whatever power or whatever advantage I have, and it's using it for the benefit of others. It's taking whatever power or advantage I've been given and using it for the benefit of others, especially those, especially those who threaten me especially those who, you know, step on my values, especially those who make me feel small. It's using my power, my advantage, whatever I have for their benefit. Just like Elisha, this man of great power who chooses to feed uh, his, uh, his enemies and send them home safely. Just like Nelson Mandela, right? This man who rotted away unjustly in a South African prison later becomes the leader of that country and doesn't say, it's time to get even, boys. 
but he uses his power for reconciliation, racial reconciliation and healing. Just like Mary Johnson, I don't know if you've heard of her, she's a, she's a mother from Minneapolis, and her son was killed by a man at a party. And Mary Johnson later, when that man got out of jail, invited him to come live next door to her and to become her surrogate son. And can you imagine the strength that that took? You're talking about goodness, just like the goodness that Jesus showed. Do you remember that scene when, when Jesus is hanging on a cross and everyone there is mocking him? And they're insulting him and they're humiliating him. And, and then they go and they start questioning his power. And they say, if you're truly powerful, you could do something. You could save yourself. You could call down angels. If you were powerful, you could. And little did they know that, that Jesus is the most powerful person they ever met. But little did they realize that Jesus was actually using his power in that moment. He was using his power, especially when, when, when after all of that, he said, Father, forgive them. For they don't know what they're doing. See, that's incredible power. That's real power, the power of goodness. And I don't know about you, but, but with Jesus, that's the power that ultimately won me over. It's not that Jesus could feed a bunch of people or heal a bunch of people or raise people from the dead. I mean, that's all amazing and that's all powerful. But, but what has gotten in and softened a, a hard-hearted enemy of God like me, what softened my heart, is that Jesus was there hanging on the cross and he used all of his power to show goodness. And that he does that for me every day of my life. That there are days where, where he should just strike me dead with a lightning bolt. Come on, am I the only one? And he doesn't. Instead, he uses all of his power to forgive me and to love me and to extend compassion to me. Right? See, that's powerful. That's what makes a person fall in love with Jesus. That's what, at least speaking for myself, that's what made me fall in love with Jesus. Not that he strong arms me, but that he loves me and he shows his goodness to me. And I want to ask you today, don't you want to resemble that? Don't you want to look like him? In this series, we're beginning a journey to just try to look more like Jesus. And it's not anything any of us can do on our own. It's something we have to ask God for, and that's what we're doing in this series. Uh, we're tracking through 2 Peter chapter 1, starting at verse, uh, I think it's 5. And we're looking through a list of attributes. Uh, and I want you to see where this all starts, this journey to look more like Jesus. Peter put it this way, he said, Make every effort to add to your faith goodness. And then to goodness, knowledge, and to knowledge, self-control, and to self-control, perseverance, and to perseverance, godliness, and to godliness, mutual affection, and to mutual affection, love. And then, and then this is what he says about those things. For if you possess these qualities, these marks, in increasing measure, they will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's saying there are power, there's real power in these marks. If you can embrace them, if you can dare to try to look more like Jesus, if you can quit doing it the way that you've always been doing it, and if instead you can start to resemble Jesus more in your life, there's power there. These things will keep you from being ineffective and unproductive in your faith, in your knowledge of Jesus Christ. See, see I hear a lot of Christians talking 
these days about, about how we're losing power in our country, how we're losing political influence, and how we're losing dominance over the culture's values. And, 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 and there's a lot of fear and there's a lot of intimidation in our voices when we talk that way. And you know what? If that's true, if that's true that we're losing power, it's only because we've been grabbing onto the wrong power. See, the power to show goodness doesn't matter who's in charge. It doesn't matter who wins the elections. It doesn't matter what they're letting your kids do in school or what they're teaching them in school. The power to show goodness doesn't matter. That can never be taken away from you. And so here's what I want us to do today. This is how we're going to close the service. We're going to close the service with a moment. A moment where those of us who are sitting here today and we're going, you know what, I'm, I'm guilty of all that. I'm guilty of using my power for so many other things, things other than goodness. And it's not working. It's making me ineffective and unproductive. I'm done. For those of us sitting here today who say, I'm done trying to do this my way. I want to look more like Jesus. We're going to have a moment during the next song where you get to come up and you get to receive a mark. And uh, the mark simply is is our series mark, this, this M that you see all over the room. Um, and in the middle there, I think you've noticed this, there's an, what we call the ichthus. Uh, it's here on the TV as well. It's, it's, this might be known as the Jesus fish. Um, it's a symbol that ancient Christians used to identify themselves as followers of Jesus. And the reason they chose a fish, you may be wondering about that, is because literally in Greek, the word for fish is this word ichthus. It's spelled out here. And what the word uh, fish, the letters of the word fish came to mean was they came to be this acronym for a phrase where each letter stood for a word in a sentence. And the sentence was, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. So literally the word ichthus, you know, if you take the letters, it would make this phrase in Greek, Jesus Christ, God's Son, Savior. And so early Christians, they, they, they'd mark themselves with this as a sign that they followed Jesus, but also a reminder that they followed Jesus. And so today, as the song happens here in a minute, you're going to be invited to come up at your own. No one's going to direct you up. You don't have to get up. There's no pressure here. There's never pressure here. You are free in this place. But if you want to, there'll be people at the heads of the aisles, and they have a little stamper, and they'll just mark your hand today with uh, this marked symbol with the ichthus at the center. And what that can be for you, I hope, at least today or until you scrub your hands clean, um, I, what I hope that can be for you today is a reminder of who you belong to, right? That you belong to Jesus. And then, and then secondly, I hope that can be a reminder to you that more than anything in your life, it is, it is good, it matters, it is effective, it is, it is productive to resemble Jesus as much as possible. So the next time you feel like bludgeoning that person who's threatening you or stepping on your values, instead you might forgive them or you might just let it go or you might confront them but, but not confront them with, with strong words or with force but confront them with goodness. See, this is truly powerful stuff. So if you're done with doing it your way, if you're just at an end of yourself and you say, I want to try this in a way that will make me more effective and more productive, as the song goes on, you can come up and receive Mark. Now, if you're streaming at home, um, we can't stamp you there, but go right now, grab a Sharpie from your uh, drawer, and uh, you can literally draw this symbol or just draw an ichthus on your hand, the Jesus fish on your hand. It does the same thing as just a commitment, as a way to remind yourself of who you belong to and that a way of saying, I want to look like Jesus more than I have in the past. Here's your moment to be marked.